Well, good morning. My name is Michael Coffey. I'm the executive pastor here at Burke Community Church, and I'm filling in for the senior pastor, Dr. Marty Baker, who just returned from Florida yesterday. He'll be here at one of the services, so if you see a guy with a, a tan that looks like a real thing, not out of a bottle, that's uh, Dr. Baker. And if you're visiting here, I um, welcome you, whether online or in service, and I encourage you to come back and hear Dr. Baker when he's here in his rightful place at the pulpit once again. You've got something really wonderful in store for you. You've never heard him teach the word, and so it's nice to be with you this morning. January 17th just passed, and that was officially Quitter's Day. Does anybody know what that means? Yeah. Um, it's the day that you can quit even trying to do your New Year's resolution. You didn't, you didn't know such a day existed. I know I probably didn't. You made your New Year's resolutions about 16 days ago, and somebody decided, yeah, that's about long enough. You can, uh, you can let it go now. And... Uh, I want to put a slide up here. I, I love this person's uh, efficiency uh, as far as New Year resolutions. You can see they started around 2011. We're up to 2020 when this got posted on the uh, internet. And the goals kind of stay the same. He may not be having a whole lot of success with them, as you can see, because he'll have lose weight. And then he probably did the opposite. So then another year, you can kind of tell by the color of the pen too, which year he kind of modified the thing. It becomes lose more weight or later on and kind of purple around 2013, lose weight again, maybe lost a little bit and then he gained it back and then get fit or next year get fit. I love the last one there. One year, it's just completely give up alcohol or quit cigarettes, and then it's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. So then it becomes a, a drink less, you know, one of the other years there. And so as you sit there and think about what areas of life do most people usually try to make a resolution and try to change something about their life, you see the same sort of things for most folks. Lose weight, get in shape, drink or smoke less, stop altogether try to improve their um, mind by reading more, try to improve relationships they have. But with Christians, I find sometimes there's also a resolve that they want to improve their walk with God. And they may be aware of how short they fell the previous year in their walk with God, in their obedience to God, in the spiritual growth that they were hoping to seek after. But... Spiritual resolutions, like most resolutions, oftentimes fall very, very short of what you wanted them to be. You start off with a lot of hope, but then reality sets in, and time and time again, the reality of disappointment, setbacks, and then subsequent feelings of guilt, failure, hopelessness come. And if Satan can get a Christian on such a spiral, because it's a literal spiritual death spiral, then he has the Christian exactly where he wants him to be, living a defeated Christian life, filled with perpetual hopes, but then dashed disappointments. And that's the very opposite of the life that the Lord wants each and every one of us to live. It's a far cry from the abundant life that the Lord Jesus promised was available to all Christians. So I want to begin here in the sense of after Quitter's Day, after New Year's resolutions, both 
you know, for you as just a person or you as a spiritual person. I want to begin by looking at the recovery of a Christian after one of the most colossal failures ever recorded in the pages of Scripture. Now, it occurs after Christ has risen from the dead, he's reappeared to his disciples along the side of the lake, he's helped them once again catch a miraculous catch of fish, that's how they know it's the Lord, the resurrected Lord on the shore, and then they come in and he's prepared a breakfast for them. He has some fish cooking there, he has some bread. And then look at John 21, 15 through 17. Now when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he uses a word there in the Greek, it doesn't translate so well to English. I want to put a pen in what I'm preaching on here for a second and, and make a point. You uh, don't have to know Greek or Hebrew to know what God is saying to you in the scripture. You got great people that spent their lives studying and translating the scripture so that you can know, and you can always read one or two different versions, and you can get a sense of what the scriptures are saying in the original language. So I want you not to think of pastors and others as some sort of a priesthood where we have this secret sort of knowledge that, oh, gee, if only you could speak Greek or Hebrew or something, you can know exactly what God is saying to all Christians throughout the centuries. Read the scriptures. They've been accurately translated for you. Read a couple of versions if you want to get a little nuance. But every once in a while, there will be something because of the frailty of our language. The word love in English doesn't quite translate here the way it should with Greek. So I want to bring that out. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he uses the word there for unconditional love, kind of supreme love, the greatest of love, agape. Do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I, and he changes the word, phileo, brotherly love. You know that I phileo you. And so then Jesus tells him, well, then tend my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love agape? me. And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He tells him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? And Peter was heard because he said to him a third time, do you love phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love phileo you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, do you see what Jesus just did there for a follower who had failed? It's a beautiful thing. And he shows his heart for us and his priority for us. He has a wonderful way of restoring us when we fail him. He doesn't humiliate us. That's not what he's doing here by asking Peter three times. He's not trying to humiliate Peter. In fact, I think he's establishing him for Pentecost to come when Peter is going to be the leader of a new entity called the church. He's telling him, I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to shepherd my sheep. He's not humiliating Peter at all. He's not criticizing him, but he's certainly not asking him, you know, you really messed up badly that night you betrayed me. I need for you to try a little harder. Need for you to reach deep. Pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps. He's not saying that to him in any way at all. Rather, he's taking him aside 
and he's asking him to reaffirm his love for Christ. Peter had miserably failed the Lord along with the other disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then later he publicly denied that he knew Jesus. So Peter had to have these moments of doubt of whether he truly was capable of being a follower and disciple of Christ when he knew that he'd been unfaithful to him in his most crucial and critical hour. And you, here at the start of a brand new year, may be painfully aware that you've failed the Lord in so many ways. Perhaps you weren't faithful. Perhaps you disobeyed his word time and time again. Perhaps you denied him by the way you live your life. I'm telling you, Jesus wants to take you aside as he did Peter. He doesn't want to berate you. He doesn't want to humiliate you. He wants you to examine your love for him. He asked Peter, do you love me? If your answer like Peter's is, yes, Lord, I love you, then he's going to reaffirm his will for your life as he did for Peter right then at that moment. He plainly teaches in John 14 that if we love him, then we'll obey him. I'm not trying to soft sell that any way, shape, or form, but recognize that when you fail, what he really wants to know first is, do you love me? Marty made a point last week in a sermon. It was so good. He made reference to this verse too. I thought it must be a God thing because as I'm going to be preaching for you, I'm going to be referring to this same passage. And then another point he made was that God doesn't need anything for us. And when you really slow down and think about it and meditate, you realize that's true. God needs absolutely nothing from you and certainly not from me. You can't do anything at all to improve God's existence. Nothing. But since according to 1 John 4, God is love, he chooses to love and seek relationship with us. So as we review how we related to God in the previous year, how our obedience to his commands measured up, we may feel like we came up short or feel like we were even terrible failures. But today I want you to consider how Jesus related to people who are contrite, who are humble, who are very much aware of their failings and shortcomings, compared to how he relates to people who are proud, self-reliant. I'm going to read a passage here. It's a familiar passage to many of you from Luke 7. I want you to really listen. I want you to let these words wash over you. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. She was an immoral woman. And when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and began kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, not out loud, text says he said it to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Now, he said that to himself. But Jesus immediately responds and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. 
A moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. A denarii is a day's wages, so if somebody owed somebody 500 days of work or that much money. And the other debtor owed 50. When they were unable to repay, he canceled the debts of both. So which of them will love? See that word again? Which of him will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I assume the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said, you've judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss as a greeting. She's not stopped kissing my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Why? For she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And then those who were reclining at table with him began saying to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sin? But Christ said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see the difference there? What happened in that story? How Christ treated this humble, repentant woman and how he treated this proud Pharisee? He does humiliate the Pharisee. He points out his deficiencies as a host. The woman, he's kind. He's protective. He's forgiving. Makes me wonder when I fail the Lord as I do so often. How do I approach him? Self-justifying? Trying to explain? Or do I simply come with words and actions that show that I love him. A few pages later in that same gospel of Luke, he tells three parables of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost prodigal son. In the passage it says, as the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled that Jesus welcomed them. That's the operative word there in that sentence. It's amazing. They're angry that sinners and tax collectors are gathering around Jesus, and he's welcoming them. He's telling them, come on, come close. They're having a problem with that. And the three parables that he gives there shows how God is constantly seeking out those who have lost their way. And the parables are usually talking and taught as people who are unsaved and he'll leave the 99 sheep and go looking for the one that's lost but like marty teaches up here correctly time and time again any sort of illustration any sort of example you can't stretch it limitlessly it won't fit everything i wanted to point out that the sheep was a sheep just like all the other sheep he was part of the fold he was part of the shepherd's flock and then he decided to go his own way and got himself in trouble. And the shepherd left the 99 and went looking after him and saved him and brought him back. And it's interesting, what he says there 
when Christ is teaching this parable, is that there's more rejoicing in heaven over the one that's lost his way and has been brought back by the good shepherd than about the 99 that never left. It's the same thing with the coin that's lost there. It's a coin. It's like everything else in the bag. But when it becomes lost and it's found, he says the exact same thing about an inanimate object which represents something that's been lost, that's gone an errant way. He sits there and says that there's more rejoicing in heaven over finding that. The story of the prodigal son shows a heavenly father who's always watching, always looking down the road. And then one day, finally, when the prodigal has come to his senses and is coming back and as a repentant son should to a loving father, the father reverses all protocol of that time, gathers up his robes, you see this old man with old man legs running down, grabbing his son, falling upon him, kissing and hugging him, calling for unmerited fine clothing, a ring, and declaring a celebration because you repented. You came back to me. You came back to my love. That story, there's no accusation from the father. There's no humiliation. There's just a reaffirmation of love between the two. When Jesus was asked, which commandment is the greatest? He immediately answered with truth from the ancient scriptures. Hundreds of years before he appeared on earth as a man. The very God-breathed words and revelation of God. It was an instant reply. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. Not so long ago, I had a family member who contacted me and said that he felt that he'd so abandoned God for so long, he didn't, he didn't see how he could ever be restored and be forgiven. And my answer was true for him as it is for me even if he thought I'd never officially strayed from God. But any of us, when we're not right, the answer was found in Revelation 2, verses 1 through 5. The angel is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you've tested those who say they're apostles and they're not and have found them liars, and you've persevered, and have patience, and you've labored in my name for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Cure is the same, because he says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent, and do the first works of the first love. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now it strikes me that many of you here in the audience or listening online may be just like me. And by that I mean that the only one who's really surprised at my repeated stumbling and failures is me. Christ isn't. 
He wasn't surprised that all the apostles would run away when he was arrested. In fact, he told them they would. He wasn't surprised that a bragging brain Peter would deny him. In fact, he even gave Peter the timetable. This is what's going to happen before you do it. So I want to close by talking about how God sees us. Because sometimes when you look at the words in Scripture, it might seem like, yeah, that's me. I, Jeremiah talks about, you know, just a lump of clay that God can mold and use how he wants. Just a pile of wet dirt. That can sound so negative. But when you sit there and see how the Scriptures really present how God sees us, we are jars of earthen clay but we have a treasure inside of them according to second corinthians it says that he looks at us and he sees us and we're distressed and we're scattered sheep but we have a good shepherd who did lay down his life for us it says that we're withering grass that we're just a vapor Yet it also says that because we believe that he died for us, because we do believe that he is our Savior, then we've already been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as he was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. He says that we have an old nature that is continually being corrupted. That's why... In one sense, when you hear about a pastor or somebody that you've admired, and it's like, how did he fall? How could he have been guilty of such sin? He's got an old nature. It's more, I am more capable of gross sin today than whenever I first started walking with Christ decades of gold. If I don't walk in the Spirit, my old nature is continually corrupted. But praise be to God, we've been made a new creation. Where old things passed away, new things have come. On and on and on through the pages of Scripture, if you choose to focus at it, he sees us realistically as we are, but then the truth of Scripture is what you need to put into your mind, your heart, your soul, because he says, you have been crucified with Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You have been declared to be a child of God. You are a branch connected to the true vine, which is Christ. You are the body of Christ. You are the temple where the Holy Spirit of God resides. You are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. You are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. You are uncondemned. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Why? So that you should walk in them. And I think perhaps sweetest of all, you are called a friend by Jesus. So as you begin a new year, are you aware how far short you fell in 2021? Let me make it clear. Jesus does not need, certainly does not want your resolutions, your recommitments, your promises that you're going to try harder. 
you have no capability of living the Christian life. Only one person ever did it, and he resides in you. The more I get out of the way, the more he can live that Christian life through me. Less of me, more of him. Walk through me, talk through me, think through me, act through me, Lord, moment by moment. If you resolved to obey God last year, if you said last year, I'm going to obey God better, I'm going to, I'm going to try so hard, and it didn't help you to be faithful, why do you think it's going to work this year? Stop the spiritual madness. Jesus asks you, do you love me? If you truly love him, he'll tell you what to do, and then your service in the new year will be what he desires. I'm going to close in prayer, but some of you may want to talk with someone about this and about your relationship. Lord, I'm available. We have prayer counselors out there that are faithful every week to do their duty unto the Lord, to stand there and pray with people. I encourage one of you to find one of them and pray. We have opportunities for you to grow closer to the Lord and to brothers and sisters that are just like you. We have a prayer event coming up the first week of February where we're we're going to have good people that are going to be coming at all hours of the night to pray here all night long at this uh, church. When's the last time you did something fun like that? Uh, hang out with other people all night long, uh, praying to the Lord. So let's not try to pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps. Let's reaffirm our love to the Lord. Get our marching orders from him. In my case, it may be tend my sheep, feed my lambs, whatever. He'll tell you what yours are. And then, moment by moment, let's let him live that new year through us. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you love us and your heart is always for us. We would ask that this year we would let you live your life through us, that it might truly be a new year as new creations in you. Thank you for your goodness to us, your forgiveness, your constant love. We give you praise, Almighty God. Amen.